Welcome, uh, Midtown Home viewers. Welcome to my family. I hope my wife and kids are watching. Uh, they left on spring break early there in Florida, so maybe they're still sleeping in, <laughs> which they're not. Four kids. Hi, sweetie. Good morning. Um, hope you're okay. Um, we have been uh, studying um, a uh, short little epistle in the New Testament uh, called First Thessalonians. It was the first epistle, the first book that the Apostle Paul wrote to a a little church plant uh, in, in um, the ancient world. Um, it's this young church plant. Paul wants to encourage them. Paul wants to build them up. He wants to make sure they're doing okay. Uh, a lot has happened. They're being persecuted. They're being dragged into the streets, and Paul is concerned about them. He loves them. He misses them, and we have this letter that is written to them, and, and we've been studying it. We'll, we'll finish up our study in a couple weeks uh, on this book, but we have shifted into the back half of the book. Paul has started the book by talking about, hey, here's who you are, here's what Jesus has done for you, and now let me exhort you, let me implore you, let me give you some imperatives on how to live. This is who you are, this is who you are, chapters one through three, chapters four and five, now let me tell you how you should then live in light of that. So we're in the, kind of the imperative, directive, exhorting part of Paul's letter, um, and, and the, that's the context for kind of the macro part of the book, the, the details of these six verses that we're going to read, let me give you a little bit of context in that, within that grander context. Um, the church in Thessalonica has, has suffered, and they have suffered the pains of death and death of their loved ones and deaths of their friends and death of their family members, and they are part of this new religion called Christianity, and they're going, hey, we want to know what's happening to our, to our, our dead loved ones and what's going to happen to us and what, do, what is this new religion, this religion of the Messiah, King Jesus, what do we believe about death? We're, we're sorrowful and we're grieving. And so Paul, into that place of all those questions about death, writes this little six-verse section about the hope that the Christian has in the face of death. So this is how Paul responds. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13, and it'll be on your screen says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who, do not have, or who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. So just six verses. Uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna walk through them um, as a, as a like, precursor if you remember going to theme parks um, or, or Disney World and you get on this ride, you get on you know, Splash Mountain or something, um, and they, and they want to buckle you in and make sure the bar that comes down to keep you in place kind of locks into place. And, um, so whatever that equivalent is for getting ready for the ride, I need you to make sure your like, mental and emotional um, safety harness is in place <laughs> um, because we're about to go on a ride. Um, and it's, it's intense, and it's a lot, uh, and I don't want to apologize for that. I more just want to say, like, hey, before the ride, like, clicks into gear, is everything, is everybody in place? Okay, so maybe it's, like, taking a deep breath. Um, I don't know. I, I don't even know what I'm asking. I just am, like, pre-warning you. <laughs> this is a lot, um, but it's good, so I don't want to miss it. Um, 
So like we said, Paul is in this imperative section, this exhorting section of this letter, and the imperative from Paul to the church comes as he closes out this section, and it comes in verse 18. He says, therefore, here comes the imperative, encourage one another with these words. Therefore, I'm telling you what to do, church. You must do this. Encourage one another with these words. And so we know the context uh, based on the rest of this section um, that he's dealing with the topic of death. They've got all kinds of questions about death. They've got concerns about death. They've got grief surrounding death of their friends, their own deaths that they're facing with the persecution. And so we know this is about death, and the imperative comes at the end of the section that says, encourage each other with these words, meaning Paul is bold enough to believe that what he says in these six verses is enough to encourage people who have a lot of grief and a lot of concern about death. The topic of death and all of its weightiness and of all of its fear and sorrow and sadness and loss, Paul says, I've got something for you that's strong enough to actually encourage and build you up in light of death. So we should be asking the question, what is said in these verses that Paul just wrote, these six verses, that would be strong enough to encourage the grieving Christian as the grieving Christian faces and has questions about death? Death is something um, rather disruptive to us, uh, especially in the modern day. Um, and a lot of people who are, are better cultural commentators than I am and psychologists and sociologists have, have written about um, this. And so I'm not pretending to be an expert on this, but here, here, the essential point is, is that in the modern day, we have essentially removed the need for or the, um, the, the hope for an afterlife, something after what we die something, an existence beyond this life. And what we've done is, is we've pulled all of our needs and all of our hopes for ecstasy, all of our hopes for joy and meaning and purpose and belonging, and pulled it into what has been called the imminent frame, meaning like here. And so because we, we don't have a need or a conversation or even dare to hope in what may come in life after death, now we have a YOLO approach to life. You only live once. So max out your life right now and let no one tell you uh, that anything that could stand in your way of you getting everything you want out of your life right now. Make as much money as you want. Have as, have as much travel as you want. Don't ever settle down. You do you. Do you. And, and, and so we take all of our longing and desire and our, and our, our God becomes this life, this world. And, and because we've removed the need for an afterlife and it doesn't sound all that great anyway, maybe we can just get everything we want out of this life while we're still breathing. The now, the stomach, the imminent, how we live makes everything demand to be epic and our experiences have to be maxed out now, which is a whole lot of pressure for all the decisions we make, right? Like you can't even make a mistake on where you're gonna go to dinner tonight because it's gotta be the best possible choice for the one life you got. You got one life and live it. And so death, or at least the idea of death, conversations about death, puts a stop to all of that living it gives no hope of something beyond it, and so we don't wanna talk about death. I just would rather focus on living life now and maxing out now. We've even turned funerals into a way to deny the finality of death and not deal with the grief and the loss and the sorrow of what's in front of us. So we call funerals, instead of calling them funerals to honor the somberness of what's going on, we call them celebrations of life. 
Like, let's not even talk about what death means. Let's just focus on how good this person's life was, which is really confusing when it's a tragic death or a death that we feel like was unjust or happened too early or we weren't prepared for. So how am I supposed to have a celebration of life when I'm trying to grieve? And we may acknowledge death in statements like nobody lives forever or everybody dies, but somehow, subconsciously, but also intentionally, we are, we are very uh, content to deny um, our, our, our guaranteed confrontation with death ourselves. Like we can talk about kind of death out there in the abstract, everybody dies, nobody lives forever, but I don't ever wanna talk about me dying. I don't ever wanna talk about the finality of my life and that my life is coming to an end and there will be a ceasing of my existence. Because what that does is the ceasing of my existence punches in the face how I wanna live this life, which is I gotta get everything out now. And there's gonna be an end to that. And so what am I supposed to do with that? It jolts my ability to actually experience the joy and the ecstasy of a YOLO life, of a get everything out of life right now. Death is the great interrupter. So Martin Heidegger, who was a German philosopher 100 years ago, um, he wrote a lot about existential living on being. Uh, He wrote about the sense of being. Um, And he says that for the modern mind, a post-enlightenment mind to deal with the reality of death One has to deal with, and I'm gonna quote him and then I'll explain it, kind of, because it's philosopher, but he says one has to deal with the possibility, when thinking about death, one has to deal with the possibility of the impossibility of any existence at all. Meaning, when I sit and think about my own death and deal with the reality of my own death, what I'm confronted with is the possibility in death of ceasing to exist and nobody even remembering me. And we say, oh man, that's morbid. Like you gotta deal with that, that kind of, but here, um, can you tell me the name of your great-great-grandfather? No, because you don't care about him. And he lived 150 years ago, and so you don't even, maybe not, you know, 100 years ago, you don't know his name, you don't know his job was, you don't know what he cared about, you don't know who his friends were, you don't know what he did, because his existence was a breath. And to deal with our own sense of that kind of finitude, Martin Heidegger would say, here's what that, um, that interruption forces us into. We've got to deal with the fact that we are completely forgettable. Which bucks against everything I want to believe about my life and my centrality in the life of the world. But I would tell you that in 100 years, no one will even know who you were. And so we've got to go, oh, well, then let's not think about that very much. Because that, really, that doesn't really make me feel good right now. But Heidegger would say, I will remain an inauthentic self unless I deal with the reality of death for me, but I will remain an inauthentic self because I will be a fugitive from the truth, which means I'm coming to a place that will end my existence and nobody will remember me in two generations. So I can keep death, or I, I, I will attempt to keep death, my death at least, and the death of all my loved ones, this abstract thought. I can't deal with it, it's too much, it's too uh, interruptive, it's too confronting to the way I want to view my life. So I'll keep living in the oblivion that death is coming for me and everybody I love. But, Heidegger would say, the Bible would say, dealing with reality means I have to be honest enough to actually ponder what does it mean that my existence is coming to a finite end. I have to deal with the reality and the finality of the pain of my death and the death of everyone I love. Death is batting a thousand. Other than Enoch and Elijah, I know, don't quote scripture back at your preacher, okay? I know that they didn't die in chariots and whatever. I'm saying you're gonna die. Everybody wanna talk this morning now? (laughs) You excited you came to church this morning? I bet you're glad you stayed home because you can turn me off. They can't. 
But that's, that's the situation for us. That's actually the situation that Paul's writing into. He's writing to a church in Thessalonians that is dealing with questions about death. What happened to our loved ones? What's gonna happen to us? What do we believe in this new thing called Christendom? What do we believe in this new thing called the, the way, the, this, this religion of the Messiah? What do we believe about death? Because I got grief, Paul, and I got questions, Paul, and I don't know what's gonna happen. And so Paul's writing in these six verses, he says something into that space. And what I want to uh, set up for our time as, as we wade into these waters, as this roller coaster, you know, everybody's buckled in and we're going, is that I'm going to talk about two things. One, I'm going to talk about the paradigm with which we approach the idea of death and grief. Talk about a paradigm that Paul talks about. And then we're going to talk about the hope that he says to encourage each other with. So the paradigm first, which has kind of two pitfalls that we'll talk about, and then the, the hope that gets infused into our grief in the, in the sorrow of death. So, he says, encourage one, one, one another with these words. So, what words does Paul give to help them approach the conversation of death and grief and sorrow? Well, verse 13, the start of this section uh, begins this way. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those that have fallen asleep. So, Paul knows that they are grieving. Paul knows that they are sorrowful. But Paul also knows, and this is the paradigm that he's giving us to approach our sorrow, and especially sorrow related to death. He says there's a paradigm. I know something about your grief, Thessalonians. I know something about your grief, Midtown, that he says you're uninformed about something, meaning you don't have the whole picture, meaning you're not living in light of the entire big narrative that's going on while you're grieving. So I want to inform you about something. And here's what he wants to inform them about. He says it right at the end of that verse, verse 13. He says, so that you do not grieve as others who have no hope. So Paul knows they've got plenty of grief. They've got plenty of loss. There's sorrow and sadness. But it's uninformed. It's incomplete. That they need to know that in the midst of their grief, there's something they're uninformed about, which is a hope. A hope that comes by belonging to Jesus. In the middle of their grief, they're uninformed about their hope. Which means, if you work that logic backwards, Paul knows the people he's writing to have experienced death and the sorrow of death and the loss of death and the reality of death, and they're overcome with their grief. And so he's saying to them, unless I inform you, you will have a life of only grief. So I've got to bring something else into that picture or else a life that's uninformed about these things will be a life that is only marked by grief. You will be overcome by the grief because a life of no hope means a life of only grief. And he knows, the Bible knows this, we know this, that a life that has only grief and no hope is a life that is overcome by the grief itself. Because in our grief, we do this as naturally as we breathe. We do this um, without even trying to do this. Whenever there is grief or loss or trauma or sorrow of any kind, your human brain, your human self assigns meaning and, and, and tries to write a story about that grief and in light of that grief. You don't have to try to do that. You have already begun to say, this is why this grief happened. This is what's going on in the grief. This is how this grief is going to affect my life for the rest of my life. And we assign a story, we assign a narrative to our grief. And Paul is coming along and saying, hey, if you are letting your grief write the narrative, it's an uninformed grieving. 
because we try to make sense of our grief. We, we try to use our heads to get to our hearts that are ripped into pieces. And when we can't make sense of the grief, we are overcome with the weight and the sorrow of the grief. And Paul would say, that's an uninformed life. That's an uninformed way to approach grief. It's like a river without banks. This raging river of grief, this all the, all the feeling, all the sorrow, all the loss, all the weight, all the burden that comes with grieving something, Paul would say if it's uninformed, if it doesn't have this other thing called hope that are banks for the, for the river of grief, that river will spill out and it will flood your life. It will be a life of only grief where you will not be able to do anything except grieve. It will decimate the landscape of my life when my life is only full of grief and has no hope. There will be a flood of grief in my life. But what hope does is hope comes and it puts banks on the river of my grief and it actually holds it. And here's what's amazing about this biblical approach to grief, that grief with hope is like grief with banks on the river. When a river has banks, strong banks, sure banks, banks that are immovable and and can't be overcome by the water, guess what that water can do? It can flow and it can be wild and it can be free and it can be deep. Meaning that the Christian approach to grief is unlike any other world religion. It's unlike anything else because here's what it invites you to. It says, hey, human, you're allowed to be human. You're allowed to actually feel the full weight of this loss and this trauma and this grief and this death. You can actually feel the weight of it because when it spills out over the banks, it floods and it actually gets more shallow than it was when it was in the river, a healthy river with banks. And so the Christian approach to grief, we're so afraid of this though, we don't think like this, but the Christian approach to grief actually says, hey, if you'll let the, the banks of hope come along the river of your grief, guess what? You can feel it maybe in ways that you've never felt it before. But you don't have to be afraid of it. It doesn't have to flood your life. You can maybe feel it deeper, but it won't decimate you. My sorrow can exist in its fullness, but it cannot overtake me. You are meant to feel the full weight of your grief. You are meant to feel the full weight of what you've lost. You are meant to feel and you're invited into pouring out your heart with all of its aches and with all of its honesty and it's only possible in Christianity because if you don't have the banks of, of, of hope to hold that grief into place, then the, then the feeling of grief, the experience of grief is too much. It, it will flood your life. It will be only grief and no one can, can handle that. And so what actually, what, what, what happens without hope is we actually end up having to power down our hearts and not feel because the grief is too much. When we have hope, guess what? We can actually feel. We can go really deep into the weight of the loss and the weight of the sorrow, but only if the river has banks. Some of you have been through unspeakable grief. Some of you are in unspeakable grief right now. And Paul would say to you, in that grief, you are invited to feel the depth of that grief. But don't be uninformed. Is your grief real? Yes, but so is hope. And so he's inviting this, that there's a pitfall that we have that that says, hey, a life of only grief with no hope will flood your life. But there's actually another pitfall that that if you kind of read between the lines here, especially in light of the rest of scripture, that that Paul would also agree with this idea, that there's, there's a way where grief and hope come together and there's 
the Thessalonians were only grieving with no hope, but here's what we can also do, especially in the modern day. I want a life of only hope with no grief. And the Christian approach is not either one of those. But what, what we tend to do, what I can tend to do is, man, I, and this is the way that I'm wired, I'm an Enneagram seven, yes, but it's just because I'm human, okay? Everybody is this way, okay? It's not, I'm not, it's, I'm, it's not unique to me that because I'm a seven, I don't like grief and pain. Nobody plans their life around wanting to suffer more, unless you're a four, I guess. But nobody, nobody sorry, Enneagram jokes, too much, I'm done. But here's, here's, here's what we tend to do. I'm gonna build my life that has a life of only joy and, and no pain and no grief, and I just wanna talk about the hope. Can't we just talk about the joy and the peace and the bliss of what it means to have hope? But here's, here's what the Bible would say, here's what Paul would say, it doesn't work like that. That yes, there is a way to fall into this pitfall that would say, if you have only grief and no hope, it will decimate your life. But if you have only hope and no grief, that'll decimate your life too. That both pits are actually dangerous and it's not, neither one of them is actually the biblical picture of what we're talking about. We try to avoid the pain so we plan our life. Like, we, we will try to get so ahead of any missteps or any possible um, encounters with pain and grief and loss, if I could just plan it out, if I could just get the right rails on and get the right boundaries on and make sure that everything is intact, then I will never experience any pain. It's one way we can try to avoid grief. Or we can numb ourselves, either with activities or with substance. We can distract ourselves, just get busy from ever being in any pain or having any grief. I would love a life that is all hope and no grief, but Paul would say grief is actually where hope grows. You can't experience the depth of the power of the joy of this hope if, you don't, if you're avoiding all the grief. The hope is meant to be banks on the river, but do you know what banks with no water is? That's a valley. So if you just want the, the banks of, of hope, but you don't want any of the river of grief, that's, a, that's not a fully alive life either. Grief is where hope grows. So I will have to experience the grief of life, the sorrow of life, the pain of life, if I ever want to experience the comfort that Paul's giving in these verses about hope. I have to be willing to sit in and not avoid my experience with grief. We can avoid brief, grief by getting busy. We can avoid grief by never slowing down. We can avoid grief by scrolling social media or streaming Netflix or looking at pornography or eating just to feel alive. There are a thousand ways to build my life in such a way that I just wanna experience the joy and the fun and the hope and the bliss and, and not ever touch the grief or the sadness or the loss. You can even, I can even avoid grief by religious activities. There's ways to pretend religious things, to engage with the religious things as a way to power down the heart, to just help me feel a certain way so that I don't actually have to experience any of the sadness or the sorrow. And we run to these things in an in, in a existential sense because one, like we said at the beginning, death interrupts the way that I love to view my life, so I will avoid having to think about death in the, in the macro sense but there's another thing that actually drives our avoidance of grief and pain. It's not just death in the macro, epic, cosmic sense. Is that we can try very hard to avoid the grief that comes with the daily deaths. Daily deaths are um, happening to us in every season of life. There's the daily death that requires a grief, a daily grief um, of dying to self, 
that every Christian is called to, and there's a pain in that, there's a sorrow in that. If there's a death, then there's a, there's a loss and there's a grieving of something. There's the daily death of realizing that my desires and my longings are constantly being dashed and deferred, which Proverbs would say, hope deferred makes the heart sick, meaning hope deferred makes you really sad. Longing deferred is a sad thing. There's a daily death of realizing my outer body is wasting away and I'm becoming more frail and more fragile. I can't do all the things that I used to do and that means I may not have what it takes to face the the responsibilities that I have in the call in my life to be a dad and a husband and a pastor. But my outer self is wasting away, Paul says in the New Testament, that like I'm I'm only becoming less and less attractive and less and less able to actually do what I wanna do. I was never attractive to begin with, but I'm, I'm even like farther down the totem pole. I know that's tough to believe, but it's, it's, it's this idea of having to deal with my finitude, my fragility. I'm exhausted at the end of my daily tasks because my outer body is wasting away. There's the daily death of realizing that I have a deep love for my spouse and my kids and my community, but the love that I want back from them will never be all that I want it to be. So I've gotta actually like let that die my expectations of what that's supposed to look like and feel like, and that's a daily death of going, this may not ever be what I inside really, really want it to be. And by the way, that list, when I, when I was, was confronted with the term daily deaths, I just started thinking about it, that list of those little daily deaths was just the first ones off the top of my head after 10 minutes. And that's not like, wow, Elliot, you're so self-aware, that was so crazy and deep. It was like, no, there are dozens more that I didn't even let myself think about because <laughs> I was trying to avoid the grief of it. So there, there's, there's so many places in our life that we have daily deaths that require a grief and an experience of the pain of what it means to be alive. And we haven't even mentioned the grief of deep loss, like losing friends that like you, you're moving or you've moved or friends have moved away, the loss of that. There's the death of, or there's the grief of like death people that you've loved that have died that you've had to be at the funeral for, that, that, that's, that's, a, that's a deep grief that we can try to avoid in these ways. There's the grief of trauma that's happened to you in your story. There's the grief of abandonment. There's all kinds of deep grief. There's the, there's the deep grief of abuse. That, it, that to sit in that and like deal with that part of, of the story of your life is so sad. And so it's really difficult to want to sit in that sadness. And so I would just rather have a life of only hope. I don't want to talk about the grief. I don't want to talk about the pain or deal with the sadness. But here's the point. This is what Paul is trying to say. The more I avoid these sad places in the river of my grief, the hard, the painful, the grief-filled places, the less I will be able to experience the hope that Paul's talking about here. It's a river with banks, and it's both things. So please understand for Paul, this, these banks of hope that we're gonna talk about that he gives to hold the river of grief is, is not some theoretical hope. It's not some abstract hope. Paul's not shallow. Paul's saying, now I'm actually giving you a hope that's able to hold the deepest sorrows of life. And I'm not dumbing down how deep those sorrows are and giving you some um, idea of shallow sentimentality that would come alongside and just try to like nudge the river a little bit. Like I'm giving you banks that can hold the deepest, most sorrowful death and grief that any human could ever experience. Joseph and I were talking about that this week 
that we can, as Christians, we can avoid the deep river of grief by actually just giving shallow sentimentality to people, even if that shallow sentimentality is true. Like, the idea that someone would, would, would be at a funeral or be at a, at a, at a graveside or be um, having to bury someone that they love deeply and someone would come along and say, it's okay, you'll see them again. It's like, that, that's true, but that doesn't help. Because you know what that person's doing is all that they're doing is saying, hey, this is so sad, I can't touch it. And so let me just throw something at you that actually keeps the sadness away. Let me throw something at you that keeps you out of being sad. Like, don't get too sad while I'm here in front of you. So let me just like try to drop a little bit of something on there that'll make that go away. That's not what Paul's doing. We offer sentimentality when we're afraid of grief. We offer hope when we know that the banks can hold the river. This is the power of God for those that are grieving. And Paul wants us to make sure we understand both things. This is not a life of grief without hope. It is also not a life of hope without grief. It's both things. And that's what he wants to inform them about. That's what he says. I don't want you to be uninformed. I need to inform you about the hope that you have alongside of your grief so that you're not afraid of the grief, but you can also stand in the hope. So what does he inform them about? Well, he tells them how the story of the history of the world is going to end. And I know that if you were raised in the church or if you've been peripheral to the church or like are familiar with some churchy things, that when a, when a preacher, when a pastor says the story of the history of the end of the world, like what is the afterlife, what is, what is where we're headed, that our mind is filled with images of heaven and, and our images are like dancing on clouds and playing the harp and wearing white robes and, and we get vaped out of this world at the rapture and then God burns this world to the ground and we get to live and dance and sing and we just sing cheesy worship songs for a quadrillion years and we throw that out there like that's meant to comfort me in my deep grief and actually what that does, if I try to hold up that shallow hope to the edges and the banks of my river of grief, that's, that actually makes my grief worse because you're going, wait, wait, I came to this thing called Christendom, I came to this thing called Christianity to get some banks for the river of my grief, and now all that the river of my grief did to that shallow hope of cloud-vaped living is it made the grief spill over into the landscape, and now my life is flooded, so get, get that Bible out of here. If that's what we're talking about, then I don't want it either. And that's not what Paul's saying. It is definitely what most people in or out of the church think the church believes about the hope of Christendom. So, some like shallow existence where I guess like I'm not allowed to feel anything and I guess I'm supposed to be excited about singing for, for the rest of my life and the, the existence where I'm gonna like fly on wings in some ethereal, you know, blue skies dancing on clouds. And, and to be honest with you, I've said this in here before, that sounds more like hell than it does like heaven to me. And so that, don't, like, you're trying to comfort me with hell? Because that, that's not comforting. That's, that's not a comforting thing for someone who's drowning in the river of grief and loss. It's not what Paul tells them here. It may be what you assumed he's telling them on the first read because it's how we read our history into Scripture. But he's not telling them that. He tells them how the culmination of all things is going to happen he tells them that because of the death and the sorrow that they have experienced, it is really easy to believe, like we said, in our grief and in our sorrow, we write a story, we write a narrative, we assign meaning to, uh, to our grief, 
And he knows that it's really easy to believe that death gets the final word. But Paul here tells them about a more final word. And here's what he says. He tells them that at the end of time, King Jesus is returning and he's bringing all of heaven's joy with him. At the end of time, King Jesus is returning and he's bringing all of heaven's joy with him. I'm gonna read for you these two verses, but please understand this imagery that he uses to describe that culmination of the end of history is, is, is poetic. He's painting a picture. He's using an allegory. And what we do is we hear this and we try to get Western and forensic on it and rational on it and go, okay, well, so this is what he said. I wonder what the order is gonna be and I wonder how that's gonna work and I wonder what, like, and we start trying to like pick it apart and figure out like the order of operations of this. Don't do that. He's not being forensic. He's being poetic. He's trying to give you something to dream about and something to use your redeemed imagination to like lean into. He's painting a picture. So will you throw the last slide up there, the last couple of slides, we're gonna be in verse 16 and 17. Let me read this. It says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. I'm gonna read it one more time, and we're gonna, we're gonna dive into it, the, the allegory that he's giving. These are the banks for your river. It says, for the Lord himself will descend, means he's coming somewhere, he's coming to us. Will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. If you were a first century reader, which you're not, but if you were and you heard that description, you would know exactly the event that he's trying to describe. It would be like today if I told you, hey, I was at this event and there was a white dress and there was an aisle and there were flower petals and there was, there was a party afterwards, you would know he's talking about a wedding. Like I just told you the elements that everybody's familiar with where you go, oh, that's what he's talking about. Same thing here. When Paul describes these elements of what that day is gonna be like when Jesus returns, they're going, and he says all, he gives all these clues and these descriptors, they go, I know exactly what he's talking about. Paul just described the procession of a king. For them, Caesar. He just described the victorious procession of a king who's been off to war and his triumphant procession back home, like back to Rome. He's coming after winning a war and he's bringing with him the people who have already been with him, like the people who fought the battle. He's bringing with him all those people back home and when you were in Rome and you heard Caesar coming home off from war and the trumpet was sounding and the announcement was there and your king was coming back home, you knew he'd been victorious and he was bringing with him the victory of what he had just won and so if you heard it and words started to spread hundreds of miles away, the trumpet was sounding, the procession was happening, and you would go, I want to go join the party. I don't have to wait till he gets to Rome. I can, I can actually run out there with my, with my family and my friends, and we can go join the procession. We can enter Rome together, and there will be dancing and singing and feasting and joy and laughter, and we will be with our victorious king as he brings his victory home. That's what Paul just said. 
the victorious King Jesus is coming back and he's returning home after his victory in the war. And the trumpet will sound and there will be a great procession. And the dead in Christ, he says, will rise first, meaning like there will be people who join the procession before those who are left alive here. But those who are left alive, they're gonna hear the trumpet too and they will join the procession themselves. But the procession doesn't, processions don't stop until they get home. So when he says in there, we will meet the Lord in the air, it's not like we meet the Lord in the air and we turn into vapes. He's saying, no, you're gonna meet the Lord in the air and join him as he brings heaven here. You're gonna join the victory procession until he gets home, until he gets back to Rome. You're gonna join the king in his victory until you get home. Well, that may sound too abstract to bring much comfort. That, that may not sound like banks to hold the river of grief for you. But, but let me unpack this just a little bit more. We're gonna keep digging here for just a few minutes. First Corinthians chapter 15, which is another great chapter on um, that day, the, the resurrected victorious King Jesus, Christus Victor, it's been called in church history. When Christus Victor, Christ the Victor, returns, First Corinthians 15 says, he will put all of his enemies under his feet. Like he will stomp all of his enemies. And we're not talking about um, finite enemies. We're talking about the infinite cosmic enemies that Jesus Christ has defeated by his death and resurrection in every dimension. And Jesus Christ one day will return and he will destroy, he will put all of his enemies under his feet. And then 1 Corinthians 15 says that the last enemy to be defeated will be death itself. Harry Potter's parents didn't come up with that on their gravestone, okay? Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15. Although J.K. Rowling definitely has read that because it's, it's word for word, verbatim, what's on Harry's parents' uh, tombstones. If Christ is victorious, then nobody else is. He has won every war to end all wars, including when he returns, he will deliver death, its final death blow. Which means a victorious Jesus gets the final say on how this story ends, not death. A victorious Jesus gets the final say on how this story ends, not death. Death and all of his friends will be destroyed and delivered their final death blow when King Jesus returns. That song, if you don't know that song, Death and All His Friends by Coldplay, it's from their Viva La Vida album, circa 2007. It's the last song on that album. I, I was up here yesterday finishing this sermon and I was literally blasting that song on my Bluetooth speakers in my office with the windows open, like Frothy could have heard it. I was playing it so loud, and I was weeping. Because I don't know, I don't know Chris Martin, I think we'd be great friends, but I don't know him, but I know that he knows something about this. And just to wager with you, can't say this for sure, because the Lord didn't tell me this, but I believe, just throwing it out there, that song, Death and All His Friends, will be what's playing when this victory procession happens. And when that day happens, and I join you in that procession, I'm gonna say, told you so, give me my money. <laughs> I mean, I was lost in the idea. I, was, I, I couldn't contain it. I was lost in the idea of joining a victory parade where Jesus is returning and he has decimated all of his enemies and death will be no more. Death and all of his friends will be delivered their final death blow. A victorious Jesus holding the scepter to rule the world and his ultimate victory means there is no more threat of war. Which means, this is why this is a comfort, this is why these banks can hold the river of our grief. That the pain of death now, which is real. The sorrow of death now, which is real. The anguish and the excruciating pain of death now, in all of its forms, in grief, in every part of your life, what 
you have lost and you have grieved, what this means is that all of that very, very real sorrow has an expiration day. Because your grief and loss right now is telling you that it will always be like this. And your grief right now is telling you that you will suffocate under the weight of it. And your grief right now is telling you that death has won and it will always feel this way and it will always be this way. And Paul here is saying, no, it's not. Because the victorious king Jesus is coming back and he's gonna defeat death too. The final enemy to be defeated will be death itself. And so death is not the end. Death is not the end of the story. Which is why he can look in other places in the New Testament, he can look at the reader and say, for I consider, when I consider the present sufferings, they are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed at the coming of Jesus. Which means the death and the suffering and the grief that you're experiencing right now, it's not that it's not real. You might cry every day for the next 60 years about what you've lost and the grief that you've been in. But here's what he's saying. That grief, as intense as it is for 60 years, has nothing on eternity. It will be like a whisper. It will be a mist when you hold it up in light of eternity with a victorious King Jesus. Death doesn't get the final word, according to Jesus. Paul is telling you not only does death not win in the end, but the victorious Jesus is coming back and he's gonna be on his donkey. He is gonna be on his throne, riding back in a victorious procession, and you will get to be a part of the ecstasy of that victorious procession you will get to join that party. You will get to join that celebration when death has been defeated. Jesus will have the final word on how this world ends, not death. Jesus wins, not death. Which means, as excruciating as the pain is now, whatever pain you are grieving, as, as excruciating and as sad as the loss is that you are experiencing right now, Paul is putting banks on the, on, the, on the river of your grief and on your sorrow, and he's saying, this pain and this sorrow is only temporary. And he's not trying to say, so get over it. He's giving you a different narrative than the narrative that grief is telling you. Grief is telling you, it's always going to be like this, and I will always feel this way, and I don't know if I can make it. I don't know if I, I wanna be in an existence that is this hard and this sad and has this much grief in it. And he's saying, let me give you some banks. One of the banks is, is that it's not always gonna be this way. Death doesn't win. That separation from our loved ones, even separation from Jesus in his current state while he is seated in heaven on the throne, this separation that we feel, we see through the glass now dimly, this separation that we feel is only temporary. It's finite. It has an expiration date. This separation, the pain of this, and the pain that we experience now is so temporary and so finite. Paul throws so much shade at death right here. He's mocking death right here because three different times, three times in this passage, he uses a word to talk about death that we just kind of gloss over it. It's used dozens of times in the New Testament to talk about death. He uses a word to approach death that if you understood what he was saying, he's trying to communicate to the reader, death is not the end. Paul is so certain that death does not have the final say. Paul is so certain that the pain of death is so temporary that he has the audacity in this passage three times to call death sleep. Maybe the most powerful little like jab in the whole passage that Paul uses. He says death is not death for the Christian. 
Death is sleep for the Christian. Death is merely a nap if you belong to Jesus. Even those that you have loved that have passed, they're taking a nap. What happens to those that are sleeping and aren't dead? Guess what happens? You get to see them again. You get to be with them again. You get to enjoy them again. Death is not death for the Christian. Because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, Paul and Jesus can look at this thing that we call death, this final, ultimate, permanent ender of all enders that we believe that it is, and say, it's not the end of the story. It's sleep. It's gonna wake up. It's temporary. It's not forever. It's gonna be, there's an end date to it. Death is like sleep to Jesus. In Mark chapter five, there's a story um, of Jairus, an official. Jairus has a dying daughter who's sick and he finds out where Jesus is and he hikes many, many miles to go and find Jesus away from his hometown. And he goes to find Jesus, says, Jesus, you have to come, my daughter's dying, you have to come heal her. And Jesus says, yes, I'll come heal your daughter. But Jesus gets interrupted on the way to Jairus' house by a bleeding woman and he deals with the bleeding woman and he heals her in front of this crowd. And by the time that that instance is over, some of Jairus' servants come running up to him and they say, hey boss, Jesus took his sweet little time, I'm sorry, but your, da- your daughter died. And Jairus is, is crushed and he says, Jesus, it's, it's not worth coming now because she, she's dead. And he says, she's not dead, she's asleep. Says, okay, Jesus, okay, so, so they go back to Jairus' house and everybody's grieving and wailing and the family's there and Jesus says, I need you guys to leave the room and um, there's this dead girl on her bed. And Jesus goes to the foot of her bed and he grabs her hand and he says to her in Aramaic, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, sweetie, sunshine, kumi, wake up. I'm looking at you and everybody thinks you're dead, but I know that death is just sleep. He says, Talitha kumi, little girl, rise. That story is so powerful for my wife and I. We um, were pregnant a few years ago. She was pregnant. But um, we were about to have our, our third miscarriage. Um, and we were, we were rushed to the ER because there was so much um, blood and there was so much loss and we just knew like this, we've lost another baby. And, and so we go to the ER and they told us that our baby was dead and um, that we would have to get the, get the fetus out. Um, and so we went back to get a, um, an ultrasound to see kind of where the baby was positioned so they could go in and get it. And they turn on the ultrasound, and I'm not kidding, I'm not exaggerating this, I've never seen this in all the ultrasounds I've seen, which is a lot, that, they, that our, the little girl that they had just told us was dead did a flip on the ultrasound in utero. And, and I lost it. And, it, it, and that night we said, we're gonna name this little girl Talitha. Because everybody thought she was dead, but she was just sleeping. She was ready to party. So that's my little Tilly. This story, knowing that death is just like sleep to Jesus, is banks for the river. Because we'll get to see those that we've lost again. We'll get to be with them again. So Paul's saying here that's part of how he's trying to encourage them, it's part of how he's trying to hold their river of grief in the banks. He says them in verse 17, we throw verse 17 up there again, Second to last verse, he says, then we who are alive, who are left, like we who have been here, who aren't dead when King Jesus returns, we will be caught up together with them, them being those that have fallen asleep. And so part of what he's trying to encourage them with is he's saying, hey, those that you've loved and lost, you'll see them again. They're sleeping right now. 
And the nap may last a very long time, but death is like sleep if you belong to Jesus. You'll see them again. One of the joys of heaven will be reuniting with those you have loved and lost, and that will be part of this victory procession that we get to join with our victorious King Jesus. We will get to be those that, with those that we've loved and lost again, because death is like sleep to Jesus. There's one more piece, there's one more rock on this bank to hold our river of grief as Paul closes his encouragement here. Look at his closing words again in verse 17. He says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. Now again, this is not caught up together in the clouds and we turn into spirits. This is the imagery of we'll be caught up in the procession as the procession comes here. We're gonna join the procession, the victory parade of the victorious King Jesus, and he closes it out with the guarantee and the promise, we will always be with the Lord. Like that, that will begin the rest of eternity, and the rest of eternity will be marked by always being with the Lord. There are a lot of places in scripture you can go to to get the rich imagery, allegorical imagery of what the new heavens and the new earth are gonna be like. But because no one's ever been and because it hasn't happened yet, anytime a biblical writer writes about that day and what's to come, like the mountains and the lush and the food and the wine and the victory and the joy, they have to use all this imagery to try to wrap our minds around it. And it's meant to like wake up our redeemed imaginations. Like imagine this, like get lost in it about how amazing a fully redeemed earth, when earth becomes the home of heaven, imagine what this will be like. And so we're meant to imagine that, but we're not meant to imagine it and only imagine all that we will think and do and eat and participate in. That's part of the joy of what's coming. But without, without question, the most commonly used description of the new heavens and the new earth, of, of, the, of the guarantee of this day that's coming, the most often repeated promise about the coming and the returning of the victorious King Jesus is this. It's what Paul just said. We will be with him forever. Now that, that may not um, like spark your imagination or like bring you the deep comfort that, that you think it should. Theologians throughout history have called that the, the beatific vision, which is this idea that all, that all that we will experience when Jesus returns, all the bliss and all the ecstasy, don't miss the fact that there will be a beatific vision when you get to see Jesus face to face and you will not doubt ever again if he loves you where you will get to be with Jesus and literally have him put your head in his chest and hold you close. And so every day that you've ever doubted, does he actually care about me? Is he actually here? Does he love me? Is it all true? There will be a day where you will be with him forever and you won't doubt that anymore. Because a victorious Jesus will never leave you. And a victorious Jesus can never lose you. And so when Paul says here, the close of this hope, he says, and we will always be with the Lord. That's the other bank. That's what holds the grief that says, grief is writing you a story. Grief is writing you a narrative. Your loss is telling, trying to tell you what's true. Let me tell you what's more true. You will be caught up in the victory parade and the celebration will be beyond your wildest imaginations and you will be with those that you have loved and lost, but you'll always be with him too. And that will be the bank that can hold your grief right now, knowing that that's the final word. We will always be with the Lord. 
when Jesus is on the cross between thieves, he's asked by one of them um, who's dying next to him, he says, Jesus, will you remember me in my death? Will you remember me when, when you bring your kingdom? And Jesus on the cross gives this assurance. Gives this assurance to a crucified dying man, by the way. And Jesus wasn't being sentimental. Jesus is trying to pierce into his grief and sorrow and pain a hope that can hold it. And he says, truly I tell you today, you, you will be with me in paradise. Now there's two very important words in that little sentence. And the most important words in that sentence are not in paradise. The two most important words, Jesus just told you what paradise is. You'll be with me. That's all you need to know. You'll be with me in paradise. Being with me will be paradise. And I promise you Jesus has a better idea of paradise than you do. And so he's telling you all that you need to know, even with all the imagery that the Bible uses, he's saying the best part about all this is that you won't doubt whether or not my victory means that I will ever lose you or leave you. That's the day that's coming. That's the promised land that awaits us to all who belong to Jesus. That's the paradise that we're headed towards. That's our hope in the midst of our grief. And as Paul would say at the end of this section, therefore encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Jesus, we have all loved and lost. And what we long for is a love that cannot be taken from us. And so we await the day when we when our faith will turn to sight, we await the day when we will be with you and we will rest with you. Would you give us um, the ability to be fully um, remade, um, redeemed in our grief and our hope that we, we don't wanna be a people that has a grief with no hope. We also uh, don't wanna be a people that only hopes with no grief, but would you, would you stoke the fire of that hope and give us the courage to grieve, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.